You're listening to Meaningful, a podcast about people who give a damn and do something about it. My name is Sophia Bourne, and on this show I share stories of people who advance social change in their day-to-day lives to explore how they build meaningful lives and careers on their own terms. Today's episode marks the first of three that I recorded in collaboration with Fieldworks. Fieldworks is a cooperative information platform that helps funders and local NGOs to connect, build trust, and form strong partnerships for sustainable social change. To learn more about Fieldworks, visit fieldworks.info. My guest today is Amina Evangelista Swanepoel. Amy is the founder and executive director of Roots of Health, a non-governmental organization that delivers sexual and reproductive health education and clinical services to women, young people, and families in the Philippines. We talk about the origins of Roots of Health, the ups and downs of running and growing a local nonprofit organization, and Amy's own career journey. Happy listening! So to begin with, can you tell me the origin story of Roots of Health? Sure. So the Philippines has a lot of reproductive health issues. Um, It's a very conservative society and anything that has anything to do with sex or sexuality is taboo. It's just not talked about. Um, The government doesn't like to fund it. Part of this is because of the pressure from the Catholic Church that doesn't believe in any form of contraception. But part of it also is just the conservative nature of society. And um, so I grew up without any sexuality education, comprehensive sex ed. You know, most people here in the Philippines don't grow up with any sex ed. And it's not something that's really talked about. And about, well, my, my mother was a university professor and she taught at one of the leading universities in the Philippines, which is actually a Jesuit university in Manila for 30 years. And then when she retired, she moved to Palawan from Manila and started teaching at the local state university here. And basically over 40 years of teaching, she was just getting so fed up with the fact that so often girls who she was teaching would confide in her that they were having to drop out of school because of an unplanned pregnancy. And the fact that um, none of us have ever had any sexuality education means that none of us even had the language for how to talk about this. So when girls were telling my mom that they had a pregnancy, they didn't even really know how to say it. So they would say to her, oh, well, you know, my boyfriend came over and something happened and now I'm pregnant. And this frustrated my mother to no end and really made her feel like she wanted to do something to try to change this and to try to equip girls, um, young girls, young women and men with um, the education and information that they would need so that they would understand how pregnancies happen and how to prevent an unplanned pregnancy. And around the same time that, um, that she was really thinking that she wanted to try to do this, I was living in New York City and I had just finished a dual master's degree program and one of those programs was in public health. So at the time, you know, like I said, I was in New York. Um, My husband, Marcus, who is uh, South African, was also in New York. But we had been thinking that it was um, time for us to try to live someplace else and, uh, you know, basically just try to do something, something different, something new. And so when my mother asked us if we would like to come to the Philippines and work with her 
to try to set up this organization that would teach about sexuality education. We were both really excited about it. I was excited because it was really relevant to the public health work I'd just been doing. Marcus was excited because he's also a teacher um, by training and by background. And it just seemed like a very exciting venture. So we committed two years and agreed to come and see what we could do. And that was nine years ago, and we're still at it. At first, Roots of Health was designed to provide reproductive health education to university students in Palawan. But over the next several years, the organization grew and expanded both geographically and in the nature of the services it provided. Because my mother was teaching at Palawan State University, it was very easy to get the permission from the university and start teaching some of her students the basics of sexuality education. But once we started, we realized pretty quickly that the students who were already at university were actually the privileged ones because they had already gotten out of high school without a pregnancy. And most of the unplanned pregnancies that are happening in Palawan are happening to girls who are 14 or 15. So we saw that there was a need to go younger. And so until now, we, we still do teach at colleges um, and at senior high school, but we made a concerted effort to go through the process of getting an agreement with the Department of Education so that we could teach kids who are really in high school. So now we teach in public high schools throughout Palawan um, from grade seven to 12. In addition to the fact that we saw that the college students were already more privileged because they had thus far avoided an unplanned pregnancy, we also saw that they were privileged in the economic sense as well. They tended to be better off than most of their counterparts. And it didn't take very much to just, you know, anywhere you look um, in this province, I mean, you can see depressed communities. You can see um, areas, villages in which there is just a lot of poverty, um, really low levels of education and lots of unemployment. And so we saw that actually the women in those communities could probably also benefit from our services. So about a year into our work, um, you know, we started, we, we started teaching the younger students and then we also started working in uh, one community in Puerto Princesa to provide the same kind of comprehensive education about sexuality, but slightly tweaked because um, the women in these communities were generally not as educated. So we had to switch up the approach a little bit um, and make sure that we didn't focus too much on handouts or on things that had to be read or written and rather focused on activities and games, which is something that we also make an effort to do with the schools because we think it's important that um, we're really engaging with the students and not just lecturing to them. So we started doing this teaching and pretty soon after, uh, I would say within at least six months, maybe a little bit longer, the women started saying to us, hey, you know, it's great that you've taught us about pregnancy and about how contraception works. Now I want to use it. And thus far, we had been an education organization. But when the people that we were serving started asking for the services, we thought, okay, well, we need to give them the services. And so that was when we hired our first nurse. 
And we started being able to dispense contraception to women who did want to use contraception, as well as provide prenatal care to women who were pregnant. And that um, basically, from that point, we've basically evolved still with the two main pillars of our organization being delivering uh, non-judgmental, comprehensive sexuality education coupled with high-quality, non-judgmental, free clinical services. Can you recall any um, sort of aha moments that you had in the past nine, ten years that had um, either a big impact on your organization's growth or maybe that illustrated to you the importance of the work that you do? I've had I've had a couple of aha moments. Um, one of them related to attitudes. Uh, the Philippines is so conservative, and perhaps the only thing that some people find more offensive than comprehensive sexuality education is talking about um, sexual orientation and gender identity. And because we teach young people about puberty, of course, we talk about gender identity and for some of the students that we teach, you know, we are the first people, the first trusted people who are actually telling them that it's not a sin to be gay. And that if you are gay, that, um, you know, that that's something that's normal. And I remember when we first started uh, discussing about how to include this in our module, we had a lot of staff members who were themselves quite conservative because, of course, this is how we were all raised. This is how most people grew up. And we, I had a friend from the U.S. who had come to Palawan and he was doing kind of an orientation professional development session for my team at that point on sexual orientation and gender identity. And he was leading a session with them and he was saying to them, okay, um, so you know, what do you all think about homosexuality? And they all said, well, it's it's a choice, you know, like people people choose to do it and they shouldn't and this and that. And so he said, okay, well, um, so, okay, so you think it's a choice. All right, so can all of you please um, tell me when was the moment that you chose to be straight? And that was like, I could, I could see, I could see the wheels turning in their heads. You know, I could see this look where in, initially, of course, they're all thinking, well, of course I didn't choose that. It, I just am. And then you could see the light bulb go off. And that was really a, a major turning point for my own team in terms of understanding a little bit more about um, sexual orientation and that really affected, you know, how their own willingness to start teaching this to other people and to start trying to, you know, teach principals and teachers to be more empathetic and sympathetic to students who are questioning. So that was a moment that I still think back on and I'm just so pleased that it turned out that way. Um, and in terms of the, um, the education that we do for young people, Pretty much every time I'm looking at the monitoring and evaluation results that the team has from a teaching trip that they just did, I just am reminded of how important our work is because you can see, you know, they'll, they'll, we do pre-tests and post-tests before we teach. And you can see in these tables, you know, 70% of young people think that jumping up and down after sex will prevent pregnancy. 
And an equally high number, I think 65% or so, believe that if it's your first time to have sex, you can't possibly get pregnant. And so seeing those kinds of results, and especially seeing the results to the question at the end, where we ask them how likely they are to use contraception the next time or the first time that they have sex, and having you know anywhere from 70 to 80% of them now saying that they will is um, something that really makes me feel very pleased and, you know, makes me think, okay, we're, we're making a difference here. And it's, it's the same when the, when the team goes on missions, you know, they send back, we have, we have various chat groups with each of the teams so that they can keep in touch with us. And they send back pictures and almost every single trip that they go on, they will have either, you know, a very young girl who already has a child or two um, opting to get an IUD or an implant so that she can delay her next pregnancy, or a woman who is maybe in her mid to late 30s and has, you know, anywhere from six to 10 kids already, and it's the first time that she's ever going to access contraception. These are the moments that just make me you know, think, wow, okay, like, I know that the work is important, but, and I know that it's worth it, but those are the instances where I'm just really reminded that, um, you know, that what we're doing is really so important. And what have been some of the challenges that you faced in growing Roots of Health? Uh, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, um, I mean, the, the the one thing that I still have regrets about and think about and wish that we had done differently is that I wish we had hired accountants um, and and kind of more like professionals who who help with some of the setup for organizations like that. Some of the more um, you know that that kind of work. I mean, when you think about a nonprofit, often you're thinking immediately about the programs and services, and you're not thinking as much about the financial mechanisms, um, how you're going to track all these things. Some of the things with human resources. Um, we didn't, we didn't hire an accountant or someone with that kind of background. And we basically built the organization, um, as, as we grew, um, when we started, there were only three of us, it was me and Marcus and one other woman. And, um, what actually ended up happening is because we had basically created our financial systems is we didn't have a lot of the checks and balances in place that you really should have. And um, after a few years, that woman who started it with us, actually, uh, we found out that she was stealing from the organization. And it was totally heartbreaking because we were so blindsided by it. But basically, we hadn't created the systems needed to make sure that that wouldn't happen. And so that was a huge wake up call. And we have since really strengthened our systems, um, the way that we uh, basically handle our finances, how the team handles the finances. Um, all of these things are so much stronger now than I think they would be if we had hired an accountant from the beginning. But if we had, then perhaps that person, you know, wouldn't have been tempted and, and wouldn't have ended up stealing from the organization. So I would definitely advise, you know, anybody who is thinking about starting uh, venture, you know, to if you can't, if you don't have the money to hire someone, to at least try to get that kind of advice 
from, you know, friends or contacts who might do that professionally, um, just to kind of protect the organization from the beginning. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. And can I just probe you a bit more on this? So from a practical point of view, how did you deal with this challenge as an NGO dependent on donor funding? Um, Like, how did you communicate it to them? How did you just handle the situation? We were very honest with, um, at that time, we only had one major donor. And um, so we were we were honest with them. And it was a lot of money in Philippine standards. But, um, you know, when we in, in U.S. dollars, it, it wasn't a huge amount. I mean, it was like less than two thousand dollars. But for us, that was huge. And um, so we, we were just upfront with the funder and we just told them what had happened and uh, we also, of course, shared this information with our board and our advisory committee. And so many people wrote back to me after I sent this email to say, oh, the same thing happened in my organization. And, you know, it led us to put X, Y and Z steps in place. So I think it's actually quite a common problem, um, especially for smaller startups to not really um, prioritize that from the get go. But, um, you know, we were able to, you know, thankfully it wasn't it wasn't catastrophic for our organization. I mean, the the bigger problem was that it was just demoralizing because this was a colleague of ours. But, um, you know, we we got through that. And um, because we, um, you know, we did deal with the situation and uh, moving forward, put in like zero tolerance policy for theft it has really made it kind of like it's it's become it's not one of our core values, but it's it's part of our culture that everybody just knows that like this is not going to be tolerated. This is not something that anyone here does. Hello, Sophia here with a quick announcement. Did you know that in addition to this podcast, I also have a newsletter? Theories of Change is a monthly newsletter that is packed with inspiration and motivation to help you live better, work better and advance the change that matters. If you like Meaningful, you will definitely like Theories of Change. To find out more and subscribe, go to Sophia, that's S-O-F-Y-A, dazwords.com slash newsletter. Now, back to the show. I grew up in the Philippines and uh, biracial, Filipino-American. My dad is Filipino and my mom is American. And my parents are both university professors, so I grew up uh, you know, in a very, uh, like intellectual household, you know, I mean, there were just always long conversations at the dinner table about different issues at hand. And my parents, especially my mom cared a lot about social justice and about equality. And one of the things that I really remember growing up is my mom always loved to quote, uh, you know, live simply that others may simply live. And that was something that it was just, it, it, I, I internalized that and always kind of came back to the fact that the world is not fair, the world is not equal, and somehow I have been born into this life in which I have a lot, but other people don't, and I have a part in trying to help those, I mean, not really, I, I didn't really think I have to help those people, but I just knew from a young age that I played a part. Um, I wasn't, you know, I didn't just feel like, okay, well, this is my life and that's theirs. I, because of that live simply that others may simply live, 
it was, you know, I, I, I knew that the, somehow I had a responsibility because of the fact that I had more. And, um, you know, growing up in, in the Philippines um, in high school, I had a lot of opportunities for leadership roles. My school was really small. There were 20 of us in my class that graduated um, from the high school that I went to. And so basically all the clubs, student government, all the teams, it was all, you know, the same people leading them. And um, that really helped me to kind of learn leadership roles and to, you know, be able to multitask and prioritize. And uh, I, I've always been very organized. And so those skills all were kind of developed uh, from a pretty young age. And I left the Philippines when I was 19 to study in America. And I went to Wellesley College in Massachusetts. And Wellesley is an all-women's college. And that was a phenomenal experience for me. Um, it was also very weird because it was a campus just full of women. I mean, there were really no men. And I mean, there were male professors and there were some male staff, but it was all women and it was so liberating. I mean, it was just really such a special experience. And I recognized at the time how special it was and the fact that even if I ever wanted to recreate that kind of scenario, I, I wouldn't be able to. You can't go anywhere else and just have no men around. And it what it meant is that all the women were just so nurtured. And, you know, we didn't, we, we had lots of classes that were, you know, women's studies or something with a particular gender focus in the title, but you didn't even have to have those because everything we learned you know, from astronomy to, you know, the math class to the writing class, we're all taught with that gender lens, you know, looking particularly at women and women's roles and women's situations. And um, that was just an amazing experience for me. And Wellesley is a really, really diverse institution. And we had students from all over the world. And it was really interesting to, you know, make these friends from other countries and to hear what the situation for women was like in the, in their countries um, was really eye-opening because I hadn't necessarily known um, just what was going on in all these different countries. And that really made me realize, again, how privileged I was not just to be born into this uh, family in which I, you know, the, that it was a middle-class family, but also the fact that I was born a girl in a country where girls and women are, you know, treated fairly well in comparison to some other countries. Um, sure. Like it might be hard in the Philippines for women to uh, be able to control their reproductive health, which obviously I think is a really important thing. But, you know, women are educated, you know, we don't have like girl infanticide. I mean, it was just, it really made me see how privileged I was in that way. And being at Wellesley really reaffirmed my commitment that, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do with my life, but I knew that it had to be something that was related to women 
and related to something international. And that's what I said at the time because I was in the U.S. So I think even then I knew that I I wouldn't be staying in the U.S. After graduating from Wellesley, Amy got a job as an associate at Human Rights Watch in New York, which became another formative experience of her career. It was at Human Rights Watch where she developed an avid interest in the intersection of reproductive health and human rights, which later led her to studying for a master's degree in international affairs and public health at Columbia University. The rest, as they say, is history. Amy's years of visionary work on sexual and reproductive health in the Philippines gained international recognition when she was selected for the Ashoka Fellowship, a prestigious program that recognizes and supports social entrepreneurs in building better societies around the world. Actually, something that I I say just to encourage other people who are interested in Ashoka is um, shortly after we started Roots of Health, I think Roots of Health was maybe two or three years old, I was considered for an Ashoka Fellowship and um, went started going through the process. But um, one of the important things about um, Ashoka and the social entrepreneurs that they support is that uh, that you know the change making idea that you have has to be something that you're looking at wide scale. You know, like really to to change more than just your immediate community. And I remember that first phone call I had with someone from the Ashoka Philippines team. They were asking, you know, so do you have plans to scale your organization? And I was like, nope, 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 nope. You know, at that point, we were just very focused on Bread de Princesa. And I actually had not really realized at that point how much bigger of an impact Roots of Health could make. And um, so I was not selected to, to move forward in that process. And it wasn't until last year, basically, that um, they revisited me and, and uh, we started talking. And I did tell them that actually, you know, I, I do see now that the idea that we have um, is something that can really change change lives and potentially change systems so that more people can be um affected and can be, you know, will be able to improve their health and improve their lives. And the process was, um, you know, it, it, it was a lot of conversations um, after several phone conversations with different people who were involved in the selection process and some in-person conversations. Uh, one of the last pieces was basically I went to Manila and had, um, I think, four back-to-back-to-back interviews, as well as a four-hour interview with someone from Ashoka Global who had come to screen applicants um, as part of the last part. And for that, for, for that four-hour conversation, it actually started with them saying, okay, so you were born, what next? And so it was really, you know, to try to get at, you know, the person, what what has influenced you? How do you think? Why do you think the way that you think? And, um, you know, by the end of that two-day period, I was so tired of talking about myself that I think I, you know, I couldn't do it for a long time afterwards. But um, I was really thrilled to be selected. And um, I was inducted officially this past February And the Ashoka Fellowship has been great already in a lot of ways, um, but one of the most important for me as a fundraiser for, you know, fairly small organization is that it has lent me a credibility with some people 
that um, I might not have had before. So, you know, just in meetings with people, when I'm talking to people, somehow if Ashoka comes up and they find out that I'm a fellow, suddenly I, I can see the shift, you know, I can see that they suddenly look at me and think, oh, okay, so this person has been vetted and, you know, so maybe we should keep talking to her, or maybe we should trust what she's saying. And so that's been hugely helpful. But I think the bigger uh, part of um, the fellowship that is is going to be so beneficial to me for years to come is the community of other Ashoka Fellows. And um, I actually just last week was uh, at the All Fellows meeting um, for the Philippines group, and it was just so invigorating and energizing because there are just some phenomenal people doing incredible things. And it's really inspirational um, on one level, but it's also helpful just for, you know, the, the, the details of how do you do these things? Because everybody is really collaborative and open to, you know, sharing ideas, sharing templates, sharing strategies, um, and just talking things through. And it's really like a, it, it's a, it's a group of peers. And as a, um, you know, as, as an innovator, as someone who has started an organization, usually I have to take care of everybody else. You know, I have to make sure that my team gets the training that they need, that they get the professional development that they need, that they get the mentoring that they need. But I need that too. And that has been amazing with the Ashoka Fellowship to just kind of feel that nurturing and to feel like, okay, I have people now who are teaching me things and making sure that I know what I need to know and helping me to be better and to be able to lead my organization better. So what do you think it takes as a founder, um, as a social entrepreneur to grow your organization to the point where it can be really taken to scale? You need to have the systems in place. So the systems that I described earlier, the financial systems, how you do those things, logistics, um, the human resources aspect, you really need to have those things uh, working very well in order to be able to pretty smoothly start to ramp up your programs and ramp up your services in order to start um, serving more people. But, um, you know, I, <laughs> to be honest, like I'm not sure that I can really answer your question fully because we have felt for the last year and a half or so that Roots of Health is ready to really scale. Um, you know, we did expand from the city into the province, but now we feel like our programs and our systems have been tested and we feel like, you know, we are ready to go forward and um, we haven't been able to yet because to really scale up, aside from having those systems and making sure that your programs and your staff are ready to do more, um, you have to have the funding support. You know, you need to have someone who is willing to take a bet on you. And that has been challenging for us because most of our funders, um, most funders for reproductive health are very project focused. So the money that we get from them is to deliver a specific project. And so when we're talking to people and saying, well, we really think that we could do more and that we could change systems and do this and do that, it's very hard to find someone who will say, okay, I'll give you the money, um, try it out and see how it goes. Um, I think funders are quite nervous about doing that 
So we are at the point right now where we're basically trying to find the right partners who will, you know, be willing to take that risk on us and to, you know, be in the journey with us as we try to scale the organization. Um, And something that I learned from the Ashoka gathering last week from my colleagues who have scaled, uh, they stressed that you have to have your board with you. Um, They were saying that, you know, no organization can achieve scale without their board being 100% behind them and supportive and in total agreement of the mission and what they're trying to do. So that's something that I have now internalized. And, um, you know, I've always had a good relationship with our our boards. Um, We have two. We have an advisory committee in the Philippines and a board of directors in in the U.S., Um, but I haven't necessarily been, uh, you know, talking to them as much about what we feel the possibilities are and what we could do. So that's, you know, coming out of that meeting last week and, and learning from others that that's something crucial. That's something that I'm going to focus on as well in coming months. Enjoying this episode? Then why not head over to iTunes to leave a quick review for this podcast? Your reviews and ratings help more people discover Meaningful and help more people start on the road to building their own Meaningful careers. What does success mean to you? And do you consider yourself successful? Um, well, I guess I have two different definitions for, you know, for myself and, and for the organization. Um, you know, for the organization, I think success is being able to, you know, empower all Filipinas and, you know, be, be part of that movement. Maybe we are not necessarily the ones giving the services, but to be part of changing those systems so that all Filipinas can control if and when to get pregnant and more Filipinas are staying in school because they're not having to drop out because of a pregnancy. Um, for myself, I, I you know, I mean, I feel that I'm so fulfilled. Um, you know, I, I love my job. I love my work. I love the fact that, you know, that I, I mean, I, I know I'm so lucky because I get to work on something that inspires me and that gives me fulfillment, but that is also really helpful to a lot of other people. So in, in that sense, definitely, I feel like, um, you know, I mean, I, I guess that is success and I know how privileged and lucky I am to be able to do this. But with that said, there's always so much more that can be done. But in terms of, you know, the, the bigger picture, um, I definitely do feel very privileged and very lucky to be able to do this work that I love um, and that is also beneficial to society. And um if you could give one piece of advice to someone who wants to start their own organization or social enterprise, what would it be? Uh, I would I would say that um, to to be realistic and to start small and see you know try to grow orga- organically. Um, I would never have believed someone nine years ago when we were starting, if they told me that we would be doing everything that we're doing today. And I think it's really good and really important that we started small and 
basically honed our systems, honed our strengths, dealt with our challenges and weaknesses so that we could be stronger now. Um, I, I think that when you're starting something, it can be so daunting and there are so many things that have to be done. And if you start off smaller and it's more manageable and you're able to do all that and and kind of know that how know how you respond to challenges and how you can adapt when that you know when you need to change course or try uh, try a different approach. Um, I think that those things are really important. And of course, if somebody has, you know, if somebody has the opportunity to start something and they have the finances to start off big, then great. But for the most part, um, usually finances are limited. So I would definitely say, you know, try to start modestly and hone all your systems, make sure that you know what you're doing and monitor and evaluate, make sure that you have those plans in place so that you can show the importance of what you're doing. And that will make it easier to find the partners and to find the funding in order to start expanding and to eventually scale that program. Thank you for listening to Mainful and a big thank you to Amy for sharing her story. You can find the show notes for this episode at Sophia, that's S-O-F-Y-A doeswords.com slash meaningful. As a reminder, this episode was recorded and produced in collaboration with Fieldworks. Fieldworks is a platform that helps funders and local NGOs to connect, build trust, and form strong partnerships for sustainable social change. To learn more about Fieldworks, visit fieldworks.info. To be notified about future episodes, also make sure that you subscribe to Meaningful on your favorite podcast app. And if you like this episode, make sure to share it with a friend who would enjoy it as well. Until next time.